and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Good morning. Uh, Read with me the word of of the Lord. In John uh, chapter 11, when... Is that right, Tim? 11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I read the wrong one at home. Sorry. (laughs) When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went ahead to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises in the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and said, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So immediately Mary went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were in the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people welling with her, A deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have healed him? And couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? I want, to, I want to pray before we jump in. I told some of you this this morning, but I, um, I have chickened out on this sermon for like a year. And so I decided to do it today because I was like, oh, there will be like 20 people there. I'll just try. And then you all came. So welcome. And this is what happens when you chicken out on things. Um, uh, let's pray. Take a minute. and I need a minute. So, uh, God, I thank you for your presence in this room. And I believe your presence to be here. So I ask that you would wake all of us up to your presence and that as you do that, would you, we pray this a lot, but would you give us the courage to join what you're doing? Um, I don't know, I just believe that you have something for us this morning. Um, 
And so I thank you for it, and I ask, um, yeah, I just ask for courage. Uh, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so here at Springbrook and really at churches all over the world, uh, we're in a season called Epiphany. Um, if you've missed us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Epiphany. It's a, a season, a fresh light and fresh revelation. The way we talk about it a lot is that it's a, a season where we put new eyes on old stories, things that uh, we've maybe looked at a lot along the way or are vaguely familiar with, and we're, we're putting new eyes on them, asking God to give us something uh, new, something, uh, a new revelation, a, a new idea about this. Um, and so today we're going to look at the story of Lazarus. This is a story that um, I think part of my reason for chickening out is this is a story that's become really precious to me uh, over the last couple of years. That sounds really ominous when a preacher's like, I chickened out on something. You're like, oh no, is it going to be bad? It's not that it's bad. It's just that this story has become really like uh, tender to me. I feel like uh, I've just like moved in on this story for the last probably 18 months. And, and that happens sometimes in the Bible. Like you'll, you'll get a story and you just kind of get stuck on it and you move in and then you like build a house. I think I've now like put a pool in because I think I'm going to be here for a little while. So um, that, that's how this story has been. So uh, what we're going to do is... Um, I don't have any cute stories today, uh, much to my dismay, but um, we're going to just kind of dive into this and just work our way through the story uh, together. So um, this story actually begins a few verses earlier uh, than, when, than what my mom read today, um, a few verses earlier, and it begins with a man named Lazarus. That's how John starts the story. It's a man named Lazarus who Jesus loves very, very much. Uh, and it's also a story about his sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, who Jesus also loves very, very much. Uh, and the story begins with Lazarus, and he's sick. And he's so sick that his sisters send a message to Jesus telling him it's time to come. Some of you have received a message like this, like, it's time. It's time to come. So it's, it's, it's either time for Jesus to come and heal him or time for Jesus to come uh, honor his death or, or do last rites or, or, or something like that. The, these people are, are dear to Jesus. They are, they're, um, do you know the term family? Like the friends that you pick for your family? These are, these are family, Tim. These are the kind of people who can interrupt uh, the very important work of the Son of God just because they need him. Uh, do you have these people uh, in your life? I read a book a few years ago that called uh, this type of people in your life your home team. And your home team are the kind of people that, the, that when they call and they ask, the answer is just yes. Uh, this is, I think, what we're dealing with. This is, these are, are precious people to Jesus who, um, for the most part, I would think when they call, he uh, would say yes. Uh, I, and so I think that's what we're dealing with, with Jesus and Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And yet, uh, when Jesus gets word that it's time to go to Bethany, uh, John tells us in the verses before what we read uh, that Jesus looks at his disciples and says, we're not going. In fact, he tells us that Jesus stays where he is for two additional days, like two days. If you have ever had someone you loved who was near to death, you understand the importance of minutes, right? Minutes or hours and especially days. And so, uh, when I read this story, it is so odd to me that Jesus stays where he is. Like, I know the story. A lot of us know the story. We, we know what's about to happen, that, that Lazarus is not going to be fully, he won't be dead the whole time. Like, he'll be dead and then undead. We know what's coming. And yet, even still, it is just odd to me uh, that Jesus stays where he is. 
Um, and I don't mean odd negatively. I mean it in the unexpected sense of the word. Like, I would argue that this story is full of like unexpected things, full of surprises uh, all throughout it. Um, and this is just one of those for me. It's unexpected to me uh, that Jesus would stay where he was rather than coming uh, when he was called. That he doesn't come immediately when they asked him. And while it might be surprising to me, uh, experientially it feels true to my experience of Jesus. Some of you may relate. Like sometimes when I call out in desperation, it feels like he's in another city sometimes. And like I have theology for that, but that's a different sermon uh, for another day. But it does kind of feel true that uh, Jesus sometimes feels far away when I am the thing I want most is for him to come near. Um, so Jesus stays where he is, uh, gets word Lazarus is sick. He keeps sick. He keeps saying, and then he gets word that Lazarus has died. Uh, and so when he gets that word, Jesus and his disciples, they return to Bethany. Uh, and apparently it's a multi-day journey from where he is to Bethany because when they arrive to town, uh, Jesus finds out and his disciples find out that Lazarus has been in his tomb for four days. And at the risk of sounding crass, this means that Lazarus is, is, um, is not mostly dead. He's uh, all the way dead. To quote from Miracle Max and the Princess Bride, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And when it's all dead, there's only one thing you can do. Do you remember the one thing you can do? Go through their pockets for loose change. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Jesus gets to town and word comes that Lazarus is all the way dead. And when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she runs to meet him. Um, I think this is interesting. John is careful to say that Mary stays behind. That Martha goes to him and Mary stays behind. If you know these two, if you're familiar with their stories previously, this is kind of a switch. Uh, normally in the stories, we see Mary at the feet of Jesus, as close to Jesus as we possibly can. The, these are the sisters where Mary sits at Jesus' feet and Martha's cooking and Martha gets mad at Mary, if you remember that. Um, uh, also, uh, in, 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 uh, shortly before this, Mary... Uh, uh, washes Jesus' feet with perfume, with her hair. She is Mary. We mostly find her in the scriptures at the feet of Jesus. So it's interesting to me that she doesn't come, but Martha does. Martha comes uh, to Jesus when she hears he's in town. It's kind of a switching of roles. And when Martha gets to him, she says, I think an incredibly human thing. Uh, she gets to him and she says, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I don't blame her for saying this. It's, I think, an incredibly human moment. Um, but then there's part two. She says, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But uh, I, part two, uh, but even still, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. If you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even still, God will give you whatever you ask. To me, part two is like an even more human moment. Does it, anyone else? Uh, it feels so human to me. It's like the frustration and the hope all together. Why weren't you here? Also, it's not too late, right? Like, I know that feeling. Like, why, why, why? But will you fix it? Will you, will you undo it? And Jesus replies in a very Jesus way. And he says, uh, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha, like a good disciple, a good Jesus follower, she says, yes, I understand that. I understand that in the future, the resurrection will happen for everybody. I understand that one day, all things will be put back to right and resurrection will be true for for all of your people. Um, If you've ever stood in a receiving line, especially at a funeral in the evangelical South, you know that this is how we comfort each other, right? We comfort each other so often with the future hope of glory. I think that's what she's self-soothing in a way. Yes, I know one day this will be true. Uh, it's, it's why we say they're in a better place, and it's a, it's a moment of comfort. If you've ever shared a problem um, for now and had people who love you talk about how your struggle now will actually prep you for something good in the future. Like this may be hard now, but it's prepping you for something good. It's making you brave or making you stronger or prepping you for something good in the future. This is how we as humans and especially as Christians comfort each other uh, is what we believe to be true about the future hope of glory. And so we, we speak it as hope and we speak it as comfort. And I think um, Martha experiences what Jesus is saying as doing that. I'm not downing that. I don't think that's a a bad thing. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. But I think that's what Martha experiences. She's like, yes, 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 I know. I know there's hope to come. I know there's glory to come. Uh, But but Jesus, I think, is doing another surprising thing uh, here. Uh, what he's doing instead is not so much asking Mary to look to the future for her hope. I think he's asking for her to imagine the future coming into the present. Like the future happening before her very eyes in the present. Uh, N.T. Wright argues that this is one of the things that Jesus is always doing. That it is central to what all first century Christians believed about Jesus. That he was the God who took the future and brought it into their present world. And so he dares Martha to imagine it. Future glory present in this moment, alive now. He's not just talking about the resurrection of the future. That's part of it. But he's talking about resurrection in this moment in her life. And so Martha, she goes back to Mary and she says, Jesus is here and he's asking to see you. And Mary goes then. I think that's interesting. Just, I don't have a lot to say about that, but Mary waits for him. And when he asks, she follows. And so Mary goes and she says something really uh, similar to Martha. Um, She says, if you were only here, except Mary only has part one. She stops it if you were only here. And I may be projecting on this. I probably am. Um, But when I imagine this, uh, Martha and Mary's questions feel different to me or or their statements to Jesus feel different. They have similar words, but I think they're really different. Martha and Jesus, they seem to engage each other with the mind. If you're only here, but I believe, and then some theology on the other side of it, uh, an invitation into something more. Mary seems to engage with Jesus in a different place, and it seems to be more a place of the heart. And it's interesting to me that Jesus will engage in both places. He'll engage the mind, and he'll engage the heart. And so when I imagine this moment, Mary feels like she's all heart saying, if you were here. I read it, again, this may be projecting, but when I read it, it feels kind of angry. And I think that there is absolutely an anger in grief, right? Like grief and disappointed, they are so often uh, irrevocably intertwined. Grief, it's so much bigger than sadness. It has room for so much emotion. Uh, And anger, I think, is a significant one. Does anyone know what a feelings wheel is? No one? 
Okay, two people, great. Um, they're both therapists. Um, there's something, I don't know anything more humbling than going to therapy and your counselor um, just pretty much every time handing you a feelings wheel and it's like a cartoon wheel and she's like, do you want to try to pick one? And I'm like, I don't know what I feel. Um, but you can Google it. A feelings wheel uh, just gives you words for how you feel if you're someone like me who that's really hard for. And uh, it's interesting, sadness is pretty much always on every feelings wheel right next to anger. They like sit right next to each other because grief has room for a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions. And so it's very hard for me to read this without reading it of Mary looking at Jesus going, where were you? Like he died where we called for you. You didn't come. Where were you? And I think part of the reason I see it is because of what we see well up in Jesus on the other side of Mary's statement. Jesus, who is always measured and who is never anxious. And we see this human moment in him, not a weak moment. I don't even think it's an ancient or an anxious moment. It, it isn't weak. It's, it's human. He sees the hurt in Mary. And he sees the hurt in the people who have followed her uh, in order to weep with her. And it moves him to his own grief, his own sadness, his, his own anger. To, to quote verse 33 in John, he says, uh, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked him. And then the people take Jesus to Lazarus, four days late or right on time, depending on how you see it. And John tells us that the grief stays thick and that he doesn't go to Lazarus and it goes away. He goes to Lazarus and the grief stays thick. Jesus, he walks to the tomb and is still angry. The grief of his friends has resonated with something in him. Uh, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about who Jesus would be. And Isaiah says that the Messiah would be someone uh, acquainted with grief and um, bearing and not shaming grief, but bearing it. Not abolishing tears, uh, but bearing them. That, that the Messiah would be well acquainted with sorrow who would bear our grief. And that's what we see in this moment. A man well acquainted with sorrow bearing the grief of his friends. And what happens next is something uh, that has been rumbling around in me for a very long time. I think it's the shortest Bible verse in the entire book. Um, I'm a preacher. I feel like I should know that, but I'm pretty sure. Um, but it's verse 35. Then Jesus wept. I remember uh, boys in my Sunday school class when we would memorize verses, they always picked that one. Jesus wept. Then Jesus wept. It's a uh, haunting image to me. The Jesus who doesn't walk into the scene declaring that all of the tears of it are pointless because of what he knows is about to happen. Who doesn't belittle the pain of the moment, but who bears it. The Jesus who responds to tears, not with platitudes, but with tears. Uh, if you've been to Blue Christmas over the last couple of years, you know that I can't stop talking about this moment because... I can't, it rattled me, it's, it's, it's rumbled me. It's been like this rock in my shoe for like 18 months that I can't get out no matter how hard I try. And I used to try really hard to get it out. Now I don't try quite as hard. This image of Jesus weeping. Like it used to make me really uncomfortable. Like why would he cry if he knows he's about to bring Lazarus back to life? It seems silly and pointless. 
But that's kind of shifted over time to me. And when Jesus weeps at Lazarus's tomb, I feel like he's showing uh, that grieving is godly. Because he is God and he is grieving, then grieving must be a godly thing. And that hasn't been true for me forever. I think I, I, I thought those two things were different. I thought that you got over your grief in order to become more godly. And that isn't what Jesus does. He goes to the tomb and grieves because there's something godly about grieving. So why does he weep? He's about to undo all of it. He's about to undo the death, the tears, the sadness, the anger. Why does he sit in it? Why does he weep? Why does he stop and grieve before he moves into action? Why does Jesus take the time to grieve what's not going to be true in a matter of minutes? Um, I told you I've been looking for answers for this for a really long time. The, the best one I've found um, uh, comes from my friend Seth Bouchel, who's not here today, so it's less weird to quote him than it was last week. Um, but he's written a book that hasn't come out yet. I'll let you know when it does, called Grieving God. Um, and I got a little sneak peek of it, and, and this is from it. Emily, I think we've got a slide for it. This is what he writes about why Jesus weeps. He says, the best I can determine is that God grieves because it respects reality. It does not matter to grief that Lazarus will be alive in a little while. He's dead right now. God may go on to restore all things, but today the world is broken and so there's grief. This should not be a scandalous claim for those who are shaped by the Christian story. After all, the proof of the resurrection is that Jesus still has his scars. The conquering of death is not synonymous with the erasure of wounds. So, in the imitation of Christ, we need not fear lament being somehow opposed to hope or opposed to faith. Grief is not a denial of God's victory, but it respects the reality of this moment. Why would I be afraid to let what breaks, God, breaks God's heart also break mine? Why does Jesus grieve what he's about to undo? Because it respects reality. Because it holds near what is true about being human. Grief is not opposed to God. It is not opposed to faith. It is not opposed to hope. It bears those things. Grief does not deny what God will do. Grief respects the reality of the moment. Jesus allowed room and he allowed time and he allowed space for his heart to break for what breaks the heart of God. He had three years to bring about the entire kingdom of God, which is arguably a more important task than anything that I have on my to-do list, though I don't live that way. He has an important job, right? And he only has three years to do it. And in those three years, he still takes aside a moment to grieve. He takes aside the time and the space to respect the reality and the sadness of the moment and to weep. And if this is how Jesus responds to the brokenness of the world, if, if this is how Jesus responds to death, if this is how Jesus responds to disappointment or the disillusionment of his friends, why would we not also allow what, what breaks God's heart to also break ours? And why would grief not become a part of our worship and a part of our prayer, a part of our practice of following God? Side note, um, I can't talk about this without being really, really honest with you. Um, and here's the truth. I hate grief. I think it's the worst. Like, I hate sadness. My, I hate anger. My least favorite thing to feel on planet Earth is disappointment. 
I, I have dear friends and family members uh, for whom melancholy is like a warm blanket to their souls. Like they are acquainted with grief. And I love that about them. And I don't get it. Like, I am not that. My nature is more rose-colored goggles and, like, sprinkles and confetti and surprise parties. Like, those are the things I would like to spend my time on. But for the last few years, the Holy Spirit has been doing this work in me in my own grief and my own prayer practice. Of, of, I, it felt incomplete. I had this practice of prayer that left part out. <laughs> left this part out. And, and so the Holy Spirit has just been like, you want to do the whole thing or just part of it? And so it's gone from being the scariest thing in the entire world to me to something like so rich, something so special and so tender. I, I think the best word to use for what has happened is that it has become crucial to my experience of God and my experience of being human in the world. Like I've seen this and I, I can't see uh, another way anymore. Grief has become uh, to my understanding of God and how he is in the world crucial. It has been, uh, to steal from our season, the great epiphany of my life over the last uh, probably year and a half or so, like in the deepest sense. I've been trying to make room in my life and my heart and my prayer, not just for gratitude and celebration and hope and victory, though please, those are crucial to an experience of God, but so is grief. And so I've tried to make room at the table for it as well. And it has been good and it has been rich and it has been deep and it has been hard. I was telling some friends recently, I was like, I think I'm having memory problems and there are people who know me really well. And I was like, should I talk to my doctor about this? And they're like, you've just been grieving a lot. Like you've done a lot of work this year. Like it, it's, it's hard, it's hard work, but it is deep work and it is rich work. My understanding of God is deeper and richer. My understanding of what it means to be a human, it's deeper and richer than it was a few years ago. And here's what I've learned. We all have things to grieve. And they're big things and they're tiny things. If I told you some of the things that I've spent time on, I'm like, I'm too embarrassed to tell anybody. Because they're just these silly things that seem so silly. But, but I have feelings around them that I want to look at, that I want to explore. We, we all have this. Uh, and my understanding of how to be human in the world uh, means that we, uh, it is kind of God to let us take time on these things. It is kind of us to ourselves to, to take time on things. And we grieve um, big things and little things. We grieve personal things, things that we, only we know about. We grieve communal things, things for our um, friends, our family, our country, the world. There's been a lot to grieve in the world over the last few years. We grieve current pains. We grieve hurts from long ago that we haven't looked at. And I can't think of any things uh, that humans try to run away from or stuff or shame more than grieving. The church in particular the church is like, no, 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 don't. You have to be this way to follow God. And Jesus is like, I did it, you know? I just feel like watching Jesus in this story, watching him as he makes room for the reality of the moment that he knows he's about to undo uh, must mean that it is godly to grieve. I just think it's a really powerful picture of Jesus' own uh, prayer life. And I think that it is an invitation for us into a prayer that has the ability to form us um, as people who are more like Jesus. If grief is godly and I want to be more like him, then I think there's something to opening up myself uh, in prayer to this. Uh, so 
We talk about spiritual formation a lot around here. And essentially what that means is that we believe that God is forming us and forming our lives and hearts for the good of us, but also for the good of the world. Um, And so I want to talk about this um, from that perspective. Uh, If grief is God honoring the reality of being human, then I think it becomes really important to our spiritual formation, to our own prayers for us to take part of it. And if that's true, then I think it's worth spending a little bit of time here at the end talking about how do we even uh, do that. Um, How do we grieve as a practice of prayer? Uh, Are we just supposed to sit around and be sad all the time? And no, you can still have surprise parties. Um, But there there is something to do. So here are just a few helpful ideas for me. I have four things that I've tried that have been really helpful for me. I really honestly would be so curious about what is helpful for you. So let's get coffee and talk. But uh, the first thing is this. Um, it, it's, I'm, I know I'm a preacher and I have to say this, but it's actually true. The first thing is the Bible. Um, <laughs> but, um, but here's what I mean. Um, one of the things that I tried to practice is when I read the scriptures and I found something that was sad or like brought out sadness or anger or disappointment or longing or feelings of grief in me, um, I tried to not move on too quickly. Like I would stop reading at that verse. If you notice, we didn't read Lazarus getting resurrected today. We stopped at the uncomfortable place. And so I've been trying to do this practice of stopping, stopping at the uncomfortable place and trying to see uh, what's going on there. Not moving on too quickly uh, to what will be undone that I miss the chance to honor the reality of the moment. So as you read the scriptures, take time, so to speak, at the tomb. Take time to not deny reality, but to honor it, to hold it, to explore it. Um, the Psalms are a really good place to do this. If you're like, I don't even think I'm sad about anything. Um, the Psalms are great. If you take notes, here are uh, five that you could start with. Psalm 10, 22, 23, 34, 91. One to choose from. Psalm 10, 22, 23, 34, 91. 91 is my favorite, but I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites. Um, number two, so that's one. The Bible. Uh, Number two, uh, art engages this for me in a way that few other things can. And I'm talking about music and paintings and books and movies. Uh, We talk a lot about here about how when we were created, when humanity was created, God created us with a task. And the task for all of humans is to work the ground and bring order to the ground. And one of the ways that people do that in the world is artists, the way that they work the ground and bring order to it is they give us their art in order to wake up something in us where we can experience God and life and the world in a whole new way. And it doesn't have to be Christian art for do that. That's a whole other sermon about, I don't think there's like Christian art and non-Christian art. They're just art, okay? It's all Christian, it's all God's. So um, that was a weird rant, sorry. Later, we'll talk about it later. Um, but but you, you can engage art from a way that you get to ask, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about the world? And so I've done that. I, I talked a few weeks ago about reading Demon Copperhead and I'm so obsessed with that book. And mainly it was because it was a grief practice for me. It was a chance for me to read like, this is the story of real people's lives. It's a novel, but it is, is so adjacent to the truth. Uh, I watch the movie Hook regularly because if I'm struggling to grieve, I can watch the movie Hook and I can get there in a second. That may be a weird one for y'all, but like also Miss Doubtfire, that's Robin Williams, I guess. He's just my guy to grieve. Um, 
Uh, there are movies that can get you there. And, and, and that's a helpful thing to, uh, uh, my family laughs at me because when my dog died growing up, I watched Marley and me like that day. But I have a hard time getting feelings out. So it helped me uh, do that. Um, music, uh, uh, art. Uh, Andrew Wyeth is an artist, W-Y-E-T-H. We're going to look at a painting of his in just a second. Um, but if you, if you want to look up more, um, music is a huge one. I, I have made a playlist, and it's just called a grief playlist. Uh, it started out, it was 12 minutes long. Now it's a little bit longer. And it's one that I can play, and I push play, and I'm like, for 12 minutes, I'm going to sit here. Or for 18 minutes, I'm going to sit here. Or for 24 minutes, I'm going to sit here. And I allow music to do what music does, which is bring order into my life. Allow me to see and feel and honor the reality of my life. Um, if you're looking for tips on that, there's a girl named Sandra McCracken. She sings the Psalms. She's a great place to start. There's also a playlist on Spotify called Sad Lumineers because I guess someone else is doing grief work. There's another one for you. And I love it because I can listen and then it can end and then I can plan a surprise party on the other side of it. So, uh, but it allows me to, I'm going to stay present for 12 minutes. I'm not going to do this all day long. I'm going to do it for 12 minutes. Okay. Uh, the third one is um, I journal. If you're a journaler or if you're not, this might be worth trying. Um, uh, here's why I journal. I journal because it allows me to pray. If I'm writing down words, these are prayers, right? And so, um, so what I do is I try to name a feeling. Um, and and it, it, that's hard for me. And so sometimes these are two places I look. If you have a place in your life where you see yourself getting angry really quickly, that would be a really good place to look. Because like I said, on the other side of anger is sadness, Right? They're right next to each other. If you have those places, it might be worth looking. Um, another is when I find myself describing, uh, saying I'm tired as how are you? And my first answer is I'm tired. That's usually a good place where I'm like, why am I so tired? What is it that I'm trying to avoid feeling that is showing up as just completely, uh, completely tired? So when I can name a feeling, uh, the next thing that I do is I ask this question. If I'm like, okay, I'm angry or I'm sad. My next question is, how does God feel about that? And that's what I'm journaling. How does God feel about this feeling in my life? And I have to keep asking it because the first answer I have every time is God doesn't like it. He's mad at it. My first answer for God's voice is always shame. And what I know to be true is that the voice of God is never, ever, 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 ever shame. So I have to sit with it for a minute and be like, okay, what, how does God feel about it? Like, I grieve this. I had a, a, a friend die over Christmas break and I grieve it. And God does too. God does too. Um, so do that. Uh, 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 you didn't get a job maybe that you really, really wanted that would change things for your family. How does God uh, feel about that? How does Jesus honor the reality of that? Like it's true, you may get a better job because you didn't get that, but don't go there yet. Let's sit here. That doesn't mean that there's no disappointment here, okay? Uh, emotions aren't single or binary, so journaling. Here's the last one. This is number four, and then we'll close up. Um, share it with someone. This is the scariest one of the whole list. Um, I have friends who hold my grief in their own prayer practices. And there are a few things more tender and scary than that. Um, when I tell someone, then I can't deny what I'm feeling the, the same way anymore. Like when I say I'm, I'm uh, sad about this breakup that I should be over and I'm not over it to someone, then um, it becomes real in a way that I can't deny. When I say I'm disappointed in this dream that I had that now will never come true, it becomes real in a way that it wasn't. Uh, a side note on that. If you're someone 
that is being told about someone's grief, whatever they're angry about or disappointed in or disillusioned by, um, this is just a helpful tip. Um, Your first job isn't to fix it. Your first job is to hold it. And there is nothing harder in all of the world for me than for someone to say that they're experiencing some sort of disappointment. The first thing I want to do is be like, have you thought of this? To be fair, that's how I'm ending the sermon. (laughs) Just realize that. Hold it. Don't fix it. Hold it. Okay? Um, Okay, so here's what I want to do. The band can come on up. Um, I just want to take a minute and, and practice right here. We say this a lot. We want to practice what we want to do outside of this room in this room. And so um, we're going to have, we're not going to have scripture on the screen today. We're going to have a painting. This is a painting by Andrew Wyeth called Christina's World that has um, been an important one for my own prayer practice. Um, So if it helps you, maybe look at that, see what you feel. If you're like, that's a weird painting, then that's fine. That doesn't mean you're like not Christian because you can't experience a painting the way I experience it. Like, this is, for people it's good for, it'll be good for, and for people it's not, it's fine. You can, you know, think on your own. Um, but I have two questions for you uh, for the next few minutes. Um, the first is this, would you consider this? How would you fill in the blank to this? Uh, if God, if only you had. Picture yourself as Mary and Martha, maybe. God, if only fill in the blank. And if you have the courage to fill in the blank or, or the presence to be able to fill in the blank, would you ask a second question? Um, how does God feel about how you answered that question? And maybe stay long enough to go past the shame. Okay, I'm going to pray and bless it, and then we're just going to take a minute. So God, who is near to our grief. I ask that we feel your presence. I pray that um, you would give us the courage to look inside ourselves at what you might want to talk to us about, what you might want us to see or feel. Um, I pray for those of us in the room who are like me, and um, it's nothing, and we're fine. I just pray that you would give us one level or one layer deeper. And I thank you for those of us in the room who aren't like that, who um, have found solidarity with you in your nearness to our sadness, your nearness to our disappointment, your nearness to our disillusionment. Um, And then I just pray for safety in this space, that you would allow us the safety to know that if the things we're sad with and the things we're disappointed in and the things we're disillusioned by are you, Would you take those and would you hold them and would you receive them as the reality of our moment? In your name we pray, amen.